You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. This is from Malachi 1, 1 through 5 tonight. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, "We we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ashlyn. Good evening. Good to see everybody. Welcome to Mercy View. We are actually beginning a new series tonight in the book of Malachi. You just heard the very first part of that book read. And uh, you notice probably, Ashlyn, read this, Uh, God, through the prophet Malachi, tells his people, I have loved you. And I wonder if you've ever thought about the most important words in the English language. Or maybe we could ask it this way. What are the most important words uh, that you should have in your arsenal in relationship with other people? I have some suggestions for you. Probably the most important single word that you should have in your arsenal is the word we, right? What would be the inverse of that? The inverse would be I, right? That's probably the least most or the least important word in your vocabulary, particularly in relationships with other people. What would be maybe the two most important words, do you think, in in relationship? Thank you. Maybe. I'm sorry. Those are two good ones, right? I guess I'm's a contraction, so maybe that's just really three. The four most important words might be, what do you think? Right? When we ask somebody else, what do they think? We're not just letting them listen to us, but we also want to hear what is on their heart, what is on their mind. Maybe those are the four, four most important words in the English language. What about the five most important words, especially for us parents? What do you think? How about these five words? You did a great job, right? How affirming is that for our kiddos? What about the six most important words in the English language? This might be really good for us as we think about the relationships uh, that we have, whether it's friendships or in our marriages. What do you think? How about this? I want to suggest these are the six most important words. I want to understand you better. Can't go wrong with that. What do you think the three most important words are in the English language? I love you. Yeah. Think about all of the songs, all of the movies, all of the TV shows that center on the idea of love. There has been no end to the idea of people trying to express their love for one another. And when they do that, they say it the same way every time. It's three words. I love you. As we begin our series tonight in Malachi, 
those three words are going to be very important for us because the book of Malachi is what is known as an Old Testament prophetic book. It's actually known as a minor prophetic book in the Old Testament. Now, that doesn't mean it's less important. It just means it's smaller than some of the larger prophetic books like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Those are known as major prophetic books. But one of the things about Malachi that you're going to see, and this is true for many of the prophetic books, is that the words of the book are weighty. There is a heaviness to them, and actually Malachi itself is the last book of the Old Testament. And it's uh, about 400 years before another prophet would even show up to make a way for the Redeemer, Jesus. So what does the last prophet say? What is his final message before there's 400 years of of silence? What is his parting word? Right, you, you know that when someone is getting ready to pass from this life to the next, many times they want to share with you the most important thing that they want you to know, right? We call it their last words. So what are the last words of Malachi? Well, we're going to see over the next seven weeks many last words from the prophet Malachi. But tonight as we look at the very beginning of this and ease into this book tonight, I want you to see two things. And the first thing is this. God's love is unfailing. God's love is unfailing. And second, God's love is unconditional. So if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, keep them open to Malachi 1, beginning there in verse 1. Let me just read the very beginning of this again for us as we jump into our book. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. As we start our series, let me just give you a quick bit of context so that you understand what this verse means and as it sort of sets up the rest of the book here. Almost all commentators, which are what we call people who have studied books of the Bible and written out what they think things mean, that's what you would call a commentator, they agree that Malachi is what is known as a post-Azilic book. What does that mean? Well, the Israelites are now back from what was Babylonian exile for them. Jerusalem has been rebuilt, the city, their home city, and the temple has been restored. But apparently the people, the Israelite people and their leaders had grown cold to the way that God had been faithful to them in rescuing them from their enemies. But here's what is really interesting. We will see in this book that the people and their leaders are not necessarily openly rebellious against God. Their struggle is sneakier. Some of them may have worked with Nehemiah on rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. If you know the story of Nehemiah, if you've read the book of Nehemiah, you know that's, that's the theme that runs through that. Many commentators believe that some of the people that Malachi is addressing helped Nehemiah rebuild the wall. These people are also offering sacrifices at this temple that had been rebuilt. They were outwardly following the law of Moses and the rituals that would would have been prescribed therein. And if you had asked them how they were doing spiritually, they would have looked at you and said, fine. But they weren't fine. See, they were lukewarm in their faith. They were apathetic about God's faithfulness to them. They were indifferent to the blessings of God. And here's how we know this. One of the recurring words in Malachi is the word how. 
One of those words occurs seven different times in the book, and every time that it appears, it shows a state of heart that challenges who God actually is. And into this atmosphere that I just described to you, we find the prophet Malachi stepping into this space and pleading with and appealing to the people and the leaders to turn from their sin, to repent, and to believe anew in the God of their rescue. In many ways, this book is split up into a couple of parts with Malachi responding to the indifference of the leaders or the priests and to God's or to their indifference of, of, of the people to God's love. And this brings us to the point of Malachi for us, modern people. Maybe more than any other Old Testament prophetic book, Micah describes one of the primary issues for us as Christians in the church today. Whether you're a leader or a member of, of this church, you and I can be indifferent to the things of God. You and I are indifferent to the things of God. You and I can be apathetic to the things of God. We can be lukewarm in our faith. And it can be sneaky, like it is we're going to see with the Malachi, uh, Malachi who he's speaking to. It's, it's not open rebellion, but rather this sort of sneaky faithlessness. And in the end, we're going to see that for us as modern people, looking at the book of Malachi, Malachi is intended for us to be a mirror. We will need to look at ourselves in the upcoming weeks honestly, sincerely, humbly. By the way, this is the unique nature of an Old Testament prophetic book. It's, it's heavy and it's weighty, but it's intended to confront us with the bad news about our condition that tempts us to run back into spiritual exile so that we may come to the end of our self-salvation projects and instead turn to... And rest in the great rescuer, Jesus, our shepherd king, who is ready and willing to receive and redeem and gather his distracted sheep back into his loving arms. So if you would look with me, if you would, beginning now in verse 2, where God begins his message to his people. And he begins his message. These are his first words. I have loved you. And I want you to notice what the people say in response. And by the way, this is the first how of Malachi. They say, how have you loved us? Now we just said that this pattern of God making a statement and then his people responding with a how is going to happen a few more times in this book. And this is the first instance. And what you need to know about this question is that the people are not asking how because they don't know how God has loved them. They are at best forgetting how God has loved them. But at worst, they may be indifferent to it. But they aren't asking an innocent question. It's a question that is at its core a question of doubt. In a sense, they are asking God, have you loved us? We don't feel loved by you, God. You say that you love us, but do you really? 
In short, they don't believe the literal word of God that they just heard through the prophet Malachi. When Malachi says to them God's words, I have loved you. In a way, this harkens back to the garden, right? Where Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent and they questioned that the word of God was for them. They believed that God did not have a heart for them. Why? Because the, the, the serpent tempted them to believe that he was somehow restricting them from one, this one thing in the garden. And God was. But in restricting them from that one thing, the serpent tempted them to believe that he did not want what was best for them. And God was doing this to them because he wanted to limit their ultimate freedom and happiness and joy. Now, anytime we see a story in the Bible of people doing things wrongly, uh, it's easy to look in on that and wonder, how in the world, why did they do that? Why would they do that? Like Adam and Eve, why did they not trust the word of God that was given to them for their good? God had never given them a reason to doubt him. But in those moments, those just few solitary moments, they decided to believe another single solitary voice from a source they had no reason to trust. And in that split second, they yielded their desires for more than what God promised. And in doing so, you know this because we've talked about this many times here, humanity's relationship with God was radically altered. It was never the same. It was distorted. And so we can look in at our first parents and go, guys, why in the world would you do that? We may be, be so bold to say, I would have never done that. Not so fast. Aren't we just like that? Don't we tend to listen to other voices that urge us to doubt the trustworthiness and truthfulness of God's words to us? I want you to think about something. Over the last 16 months, probably the most tumultuous time many of us have lived through in America. To whom or to what did you listen to over the last 16 months? Did you listen to those who only agree with you? Did you listen to only those news outlets or, or websites that confirmed your own suspicions or your own values? Did you listen to yourself, your own desires, your own prep presuppositions, your own experiences, or did you pause at any point and let those voices, by the way, it's not wrong to listen to those voices, but to listen to those voices filtered through what God has to say about those matters. And I get it. It's complicated and complex. There was a lot to wade through over the last 16 months. But in so many moments, We've been confronted over these past 16 months with voices at every turn that in many ways had a hint of, did God really say, which is what Satan's words were to our first parents. I wonder when you're confronted with things like that in the world, in your life, do you weigh those voices against God's voice? The question that I believe we need to ask ourselves tonight, one of the questions is, is God's voice louder in my life 
than that of the world's? Is God's voice louder than my own voice in my life? Is God's voice, is his word something that you listen to? Is it something that you trust? Is it something that you value? Is it something that you esteem? See, the Israelites didn't believe, at least in this moment, that God's word to them was that he loved them. But God's word of love never fails. It is trustworthy. It is unwavering. It is steadfast. And friends, so it is for you. Here's the first thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. God's love is unfailing. It's unfailing. Now look with me, if you would, the second half of verse 2 through verse 5, which is the rest of the passage that we've looked, heard read earlier. Here we see God respond to his people. When the Israelites say, how have you loved us? This is God's response. And if you notice, he takes them back towards the very beginning of the Bible. Not all the way back to Adam and Eve where we were, but actually just a few chapters after that to the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis. Now, the story of Jacob and Esau begins with their grandfather, Abraham. You might remember Abraham's story. God shows up and says, Abraham, I want to, you are going to be a father of nations. And I I promise you that I'm going to give you a son. And through that son, I'm going to bring this this move of God to the world. And, and, And I'm going to bring, ultimately bring Jesus. Now, the promise was given that he would have a son. But if you know Abraham, you know that was going to take a miracle. Because Abraham was old. He and his wife Sarah were old. And Sarah was barren. But God provides the miracle. And Abraham and Sarah have a son, Isaac. And then Abraham dies and he leaves his son. And two of his sons, Isaac's sons, um, Abraham's grandsons, were twin brothers. Jacob and Esau. And if you know the story of Jacob and Esau, you know that Esau was the firstborn. And according to the culture and the practice of the day, he would have been the one to receive the birthright, the blessing, and to inherit that. But if you know the story, you know that Esau was a trickster. He ends up selling his birthright, his legacy, for a meal. And if you notice in Malachi, these verses, there's a mention of of a, of a place called Edom. And, and it's from these two boys, Jacob and Esau, that two nations come, Israel and Edom. Now here in our passage, we see Malachi telling the Jewish people, God placed his love on Jacob, but not on Esau. This is this response, okay? God chooses not to place his love And work through Esau, but rather through Jacob. Now, who do we just say in that culture and in that time should have got the birthright, should have got the blessing? It would have been Esau. He was, though he was uh, just born, you know, right before Jacob, he was the firstborn. He would have received that. God is saying something profound here by taking us back to the story of Jacob and Esau to answer the question that the Jewish people were asking, which is, God, how have you loved us? Don't miss this. God doesn't bestow his favor on us because of anything that you and I have done. 
And, and nor does he withhold it merely based on our wrong actions. What God, what God is saying here through the prophet Malachi is God gives his love freely, sovereignly, not based on conditions, but on his own heart. And we see here God places his love onto Jacob. We see it in Genesis. He's reminding us here in the book of Malachi. And actually we see this story picked back up again in the book of Romans with the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, verse 11. It says it this way. Though they were not yet born, this is Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, their mother was told, the older shall serve the younger. And it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I hated. Now we need to do a little bit of work here, because that's the same language that Malachi uses, the words we just heard. It's, it's the words that Paul is using here in Romans 9, which is remembering the, the story of Jacob and Esau here in, in Malachi. Because when we hear God say, Jacob I have loved and Esau I hated, it rubs up against our modern sensibilities. Some of you hear that and you cringe. And when you come to verses like this, you, you really cringe, or maybe you even skip them, because it seems punitive. It seems wrong for God to love one and not another, and I get how that might land on you. Confronted with God's electing love, saving some sinners and not others, we question whether or not God is being unjust, don't we? But consider Jacob and Esau. Consider Israel and Edom in our passage. The, the two are very similar. This is part of God's point here. Jacob and Esau and the people that came from them, Israel and Edom, have virtually parallel historical experiences. They're defeated. They're brought into exile. They return to the land and they desire to rebuild their land. Both Israel and Edom were sinful and wayward people. Both had broken the law of God. Both deserved his wrath and curse. And as God points out in our text, God is simply treating Edom as its sin deserves to be treated. See, the point is not that God is unjust to leave Edom to the consequences of its, of its sin. The point, rather, is that God is extravagantly loving not to treat Israel the same way. For those of you, and, and again, I get this, how this might land on you, but that struggle with this concept of God. We, we need to ask not, why doesn't God love and rescue all people equally? Instead, we should ask the more perplexing question, given the universal guilt and depravity of every human heart, and ask, why does God choose any? Why does he choose to save any? Why does he place his love on anyone? Why rescue anyone at all? Like when you come to passages like this, and for the record, Malachi 1 and Romans 11 are not the only ones like this where we see God talk about his electing love. I don't want you to miss this. We're actually being shown just how generous and extravagant the love of God really is. 
This is why. See, if, if God were to treat you justly and give you equity and to be fair to you, then no one in this room would be saved. Not one. But instead, God, and this is a mystery, he fixes his love upon a people. And on those people, he shows mercy. Now, I just want you to think about that. Is there any truth in Scripture more suited to shatter our pride than this one? That we deserve to be judged. We deserve to be condemned because every one of us are guilty in the sight of God. Yet we are not condemned, but accepted and forgiven and adopted into the family of God. Because of the free and unconditioned electing love of God. Man, that humbles me. It brings me down to the reality of what I deserve. But it also, friends, exalts God in his sovereignty, in his independence, that we may give him the glory. There's nothing in us that deserves it. But God places his love on his spiritual children, not based on any conditions found inside of you, but rather on what is inside of him, his heart. This brings me to the second thing that I want to invite you to see. God's love is unconditional. Let me tell you why this is good news. When we say that God's love is unconditional, and some of you really need to hear this tonight, it means there is nothing. Nothing. Nothing that you can do to make him love you anymore or any less than he does right now. Because you didn't earn his love by somehow fulfilling a predetermined set of condition. He loves you not because of what you are, but because of who he is. God is love. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't judge sin or that people won't have to suffer the consequences of their sin. It just means this. When God places his love on you, he does it not based on something in you, but something in him. So you may be here tonight and you're not a Christian. You have wondered about the things of Jesus. You're here peeking over the fence of Christianity. And you're asking this question right now, Brad, okay, am I one of those people that God desires to place his love on? Or am I one of those people that for some reason... He's passing by. I want to say affirmatively to you, you are here tonight to hear the message of God's love. It is no accident that you're here. And God's word of love to you is the word that he wants you to hear and he beckons you to obey that call, to place your faith and trust in him and to receive that love. A lot of times what comes up when we start talking about these kinds of things is like, well, what if that's true for me? Or I know if I, I have, you know, someone in my life that they're, they're not a Christian. Does that mean that God has turned away from them? I, I can't answer that for you tonight. But here's what I would say to you. You may be the person that's intended to be the conduit of the gospel to them, of grace to them. That's why you're here tonight. See, at the bottom of the good news of this truth is this. If God did determine whether to place his love on you because of you, there would be no way for you to earn it. 
For those whom God has placed his love on, the good news of the gospel is that in its unconditionality, you will also find security. See, if God is the one who places his love on you, it is immovable. It is unshakable. It is fixed. The scriptures say it is sealed. There is nothing that you can do that will thwart his love for you. Some of you struggle with that. Some of you are here tonight, it's like, that is too good to be true. Friends, it's true. This is the very thing, this unconditionality of God is the very thing that for some of you, God intends to use to bring you freedom and hope and peace in life. Theologian Gerhard Ford says it this way, the gospel is such a shocker. Because it is an absolutely unconditional promise. It is not an if-then kind of statement, but a because-therefore pronouncement. Because Jesus died and rose, your sins are forgiven, and you are righteous in the sight of God. It bursts in upon our little world, all shut up and barricaded behind our accustomed conditional thinking as some strange comet from goodness knows where. See, God's grace isn't conditional. It's unreserved. It's it's not a back and forth, two-way kind of love. God's grace always moves in one direction. And I believe that's why it disturbs us. And I, I think if we would let it, it would disturb us in a good way. The disturbing in a good way is actually what is the good news for you. The good news of God's unconditional love is the very thing that God intends to use to bring peace to you, to bring joy, to bring freedom. Since you can't earn God's love, but it's rather placed on you, it is secure. It is anchored. God's love is unconditional. Now, we began our time this evening saying that in many ways, the book of Malachi is a book of judgment. It's a a prophet making an appeal, pleading with the people of Israel to come back to God. And while that's true, I don't want you to miss this. Don't miss this. The first word that God speaks through Malachi is not intended to expose Israel's sin, but rather to declare His love for them. I have loved you. Listen, it is so important as we walk through this book, whatever rebukes or corrections or things that confront you that you you deserve to hear from God, that are meant to awaken us from our self-absorption and pride, until you grasp the width and the length and the height and the depth of God's love for you, there is no hope, no possibility of real change in your life. The entire gospel message can be boiled down to these four words that God is saying to the Jewish people and by proxy us, I have loved you. So, do you believe that he loves you? In fact, that's not even the right question. Don't you know that he loves you? Friends, it was 
love in eternity past that provided a way for your salvation in the present. It was love that moved the Father to send the Son. God demonstrated his love for you while you were yet a sinner by sending Jesus to do for you, to forgive, forgive your sin in your, he came in your place. It was love that called us from death into life and gave us saving faith. It was love that keeps us and sustains us until at last we are brought home to glory. It is love from beginning to end. There is no hope. There is no forgiveness, no sanctification, no perseverance through trials, no joy, no rest. Nothing outside the truth is expressed. And these four words, I have loved you. Friend, you are loved. It may be Perhaps the most important thing some of you need to hear this evening or have ever heard. You need to hear the word of the Lord to you, not first summoning you to do something, but summoning you to receive something. Receiving the good news that you have been loved from eternity and will be loved into eternity and will be loved for eternity. God comes to us tonight with the three most important words that you can ever hear. I love you. Let's pray together.